We're continuing our series this morning, uh, our series on life verses or life passages. And uh, I love the idea of this series. It was actually Ben that came up with the idea. Because often in the summer, as we've said before, we're trying to do sermons that uh, don't have to carry on to the following week. Because as we see, so many people are away uh, week to week. But I never really thought about the problem that I would face doing a life verse series. There's 10 Sundays and I'm speaking for them. Uh, And I even asked myself, how many life verses can you actually have? How many are you allowed to have? So I've kind of stretched it to become favorite passages from scripture. But there's another problem. Uh, Usually you preach your favorite passages. Uh, And so I couldn't really think of too many passages that I would consider to be favorites that I haven't preached here uh, already. And so this week, I I really pray, God, what do I speak about? And, And I have to be honest, it has to be something that means something to me. It has to be a significant passage to me. And three things happened this week, or either came to mind this week, and I'm going to explain the three of them to you really shortly. And I hopefully by the end of my message, you'll see how they, they uh, connect. Uh, and it's not just a, con- uh, a real confused mind that I have. The, the first thing is, is it was a few nights ago. Uh, it was f- late. And I was given the task of putting my youngest son, Jack, to bed. And it was probably about 10 o'clock. And uh, Jack insisted that he was going to have a book, which he usually would get if it was earlier. But I said, no, Jack, you're not going to get a book tonight. Well, we'll do a book tomorrow. It's late. You've got to go to sleep. And Jack freaked out. And he cried and he cried and he screamed. Uh, Ruby's mom, uh, sorry, Allison's mom, Ruby, uh, and her boyfriend, Jean-Claude, are visiting with us this week, uh, all the way from Newfoundland. And I thought they may run that night when they heard the screaming and the wailing and the tears that happened. That's one of the events that took place. Second thing that happened, there's a verse, actually a paraphrased verse, that's been going on in the back of my mind all week. I had no idea why God has put this passage of scripture in my mind. But it's when Jesus is telling his disciples that he's going to be rejected and that he's going to have to suffer and that he's going to be put to death. And I asked God, why why is that verse in my mind? I started to wonder what it must have been like for his followers, his closest disciples who'd given up everything to follow him, they put all their hopes and dreams in Jesus. And then he turned to them and told them, I'm going I'm to be rejected. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be put to death. And it's easy to just gloss over that verse, gloss over that story, uh, not to really try to think of what must have been going on in the minds of, the, of his followers, his, of his disciples. And so I tried to put myself in that, their place. What would I have thought? That here is this person I'm following resting my hopes on, and yet he's telling me that he's going to have to be put to death. And I couldn't help but think as I I thought of that passage and I I thought of that situation, that there's so many people, they're okay with the idea of God. They believe in a God, maybe it's a very impersonal God. They're okay with God. They might be okay with Jesus. Jesus that he was a good person, that he lived a good life, that that he taught lots of good things. 
But that's about as far as they want to go with Jesus. All this talk about death and blood and a, and a cross rising from the dead. Why does the story have to go so far? It, it's too much. It, it's more than uh, many want to believe. That's the second thing that's been going on in my mind. And then the third thing, and I told you, you might think I got a real confused mind. I was in a hotel this week, and uh, AMC, the TV channel, had throwback Thursdays, and they were showing Karate Kid 1, 2, and 3. Uh, I realized how poor the acting is as I started to watch Karate Kid uh, and thought maybe it could be throwout Thursday. But there was a scene that I knew was coming up, and it caught my attention. And it's where, um, I can't even remember, what's the boy's name? Daniel. Danielson, there we go. <laughs> Thank you, Franz, or are you Hans? <laughs> Danielson just gets thrown out of a karate club by the three bad guys. Uh, and gets thrown out into the street, and the young guy that threw him out comes in with a big smile on his face and shaking his hands. And then, oh, I knew what was coming. Mr. Maragi, how do I say it? Mr. Miyagi. Mr. Miyagi, this 80-year-old Chinese man, about this tall, walks in and he proceeds to be the hero. And he beats up these three guys in the karate club. And I knew it was coming. It's horrible, horrible acting. You know it's not real. But there's something about a hero, a surprising hero. Someone who you wouldn't expect to come to the rescue. There's something really intriguing about that. As I thought about those three things, I thought about a passage. In fact, I I thought of one of my favorite passages uh, in the Bible. One that I have preached on before. uh, One that I often refer to. One that has helped me so much in understanding uh, the things that I believe. uh, that That strengthened my faith. And in this passage, there is uncontrollable grief. There is extreme disappointment. There there is the question of why so much emphasis on the death of Jesus. And there is a great surprise. The hero that comes to the rescue is very intriguing. And that passage is uh, Revelation 4 and and chapter 5. Uh, So turn with me in your Bible to Revelation 4 and 5. And uh, when I came in this morning, the clock wasn't working, which I thought was really going to be scary. Just me mentioning that I'm going to look at two chapters of the Bible instead of two verses might might cause you to to be a little bit nervous. But I don't want to get hung up on a lot of the details. In fact, what I want to do is I just want to quickly go through chapter 4 to set the scene. Uh, I don't want to get hung up on any of the controversies of some of the interpretations. Uh, I want us to get a sense, to just try to grasp this scene that John so vividly uh, describes in chapter 4. In uh, chapters 1 through 3, which we looked at a couple of years ago, I think, uh, John's immediate concern is with the churches. Uh, And then in chapter 4, he's invited uh, to look into heaven. And to focus his attention on heaven. And God is going to reveal to John 
the things that are to happen, the things that he is going to do. Uh, He's going to unveil uh, his divine plan uh, for for the rest of of the future. And so as we begin chapter 4, it says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door, standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. So, so John peers through the door of heaven and he sees a throne and it's not just a normal throne. It's, it's a throne that's above all other thrones because it, it speaks, it, it represents uh, of supreme authority. And the one who's sitting on the throne is none other than God. And uh, John goes on to describe God. He doesn't describe him in human form, but rather he describes him as a brilliant light that's, that's reflecting or shining through precious stones. It says, And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald and encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders, and many feel that this represents the whole body of believers. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and and peals of thunder representing the awesome power of the one who sits upon the throne. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God or the sevenfold spirit of God representing the Holy Spirit. And before the throne there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And so you got this brilliant, majestic scene that's magnified over and over and over again because of this sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And so we have these attendants, these guardians of the throne, who who day and night lead the heavenly hosts in worship. And with so much going on that's bad in John's world, It was great for John to see that the one who sat upon the throne was good and he was pure. He was was holy and he was almighty. All power rests in the one who sat upon the throne. And in verse 9 it says, Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne. And so we we see this act of worship, that as this praise and honor, this worship of the one sitting upon the throne is going on, this act of worship is is to submit oneself to the one who sits on the throne. It says they lay their crowns before the throne and they say, you are worthy, our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being this one who sits upon the throne he's majestic he's brilliant he's almighty he's all powerful and he hasn't forgotten his creation his purposes still stand 
His purposes will be fulfilled. And that's the brilliant scene that John describes. Words, words can't, can't cover what John saw. I definitely can't describe it as brilliant as what John saw. And yet with such brilliance, with such an amazing scene, John perceives a problem. Hard to believe, but he perceives a potential problem. I used to go to a church, Don Valley Bible Chapel in Toronto, and and one of my fondest memories of my time at Don Valley was playing on a baseball team. We had a great slow pitch team, and we played in a, a league with a bunch of other of the churches in the Toronto and Markham area. And I remember this one particular year, we went to the finals, and we were playing the last game, winner takes all, against Markham Bible Chapel. And uh, someone was able to get uh, a permit for us to be able to use a brand new ball diamond, home run fences, lights, everything uh, in, the, in the Markham area. And uh, the game was scheduled to start about 8.30 at night. Both teams arrived. It was still light. We practiced and got ready for the game. We started to play the game. And then someone made a horrible discovery. Nobody had a key to be able to flick the lights on. So we were all excited. We were all revved up to play this game. In fact, we were starting to even play the game. But we knew we weren't going to be able to finish. We were going to be left uh, in the dark. John finds himself in a similar situation. uh, Much greater in context, of course. John tells us that he sees this throne and he sees one sitting on the throne and John says that in the right hand of the one who's sitting on the throne is a scroll and one of the details that's important is the fact that this scroll is in God's right hand because that signifies the fact that that God has the inherent authority to translate into action whatever it is that's inside the scroll and the, uh, the other thing it says about the scroll is that it's sealed with seven seals. So we may ask, well, what's in the scroll? What, what are the contents? Well, the seven seals tell us that it's a legal document. Uh, it's the title and deed to the universe. And, and God is the owner. And he's ready to hand this scroll off to its rightful heir. One who will be able to fulfill what's inside. And so we ask, well, what's inside the scroll? Because that's really, really important. And if you went through chapters 6 through 10 of Revelation, you would see the scroll opened and each seal broken. And we discover what it is that's actually in the scroll. But but let me save us some time. In the scroll is God's answer to the mess the world finds itself in. It's God's solution for how he's going to bring about that promised future day when there'll be no more pain, uh, no more conflict, no more strife, no more tears, no more grief. It's a scroll of judgment. It describes how God is going to take back the universe from Satan and how he's going to deal with those who have rejected him. And it's a scroll of hope. Because it it describes the the final chapter of God's redemptive uh, saving purposes. So bottom line, God is sitting on the throne and and in his hand is this scroll. A a document of unparalleled significance. 
because it contains God's account of the destiny of the world. The final chapter for those who've put their trust in Him and, and the final chapter for those who haven't put their trust in Him. And John's ecstatic because this is what he's here for. He's finally going to see the things that are going to happen. He's finally going to see how this promised future day, the day that he's committed his life to, is going to come about. But there's a problem. There was no one there that could flick on the lights. If you read in chapter 5, it says, And I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. You've got to be kidding me. Nobody? Surely there's got to be somebody. No one worthy. No one worthy to even go into the presence of the throne and to take the scroll from his right hand, let alone to open the scroll and to reveal what's inside and, and to fulfill what the contents were. John begins to weep. He's, he's not going to see the things that he'd been promised that he would see. He starts to cry and creation is speechless. And the search begins. The call is put out. We have to find someone who's worthy. But the responses start coming back. There's no one worthy that can be found. No one in heaven, no one on earth. No angelic being, no, no godly person living on earth, no prophet that, that once lived and has since died. No one can be found. And John is devastated. Verse 4 says, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. And that, that phrase, wept and wept, literally means that he wailed with grief and misery. If we think Jack was screaming because he didn't have a book, multiply it by infinity, and that was John's emotions. Best case, everything was going to be postponed. God's plans were put on hold. But John had concluded the worst case. God's purposes, his plans were being thwarted. There wasn't going to be a kingdom. There wasn't going to be judgment. There wasn't going to be that promise of a future day for those who have committed their lives to him. If God's purposes and his plans have failed, then life is meaningless. And there's nothing left but to weep and to cry. And yet just as John figured that there was no hope left, Verse 5 says, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Of course. 
How could John have forgotten? There's someone who's worthy. And John would have had no problem understanding who the elder was describing. These were prophecies from the Old Testament. Of course, the promised Messiah, the one who is going to fulfill the promises of salvation, who is going to, to rule over all, that's what many Jewish people were still waiting for. This promised Messiah who was going to come from the, the tribe of Judah, who's going to come from the line of David. And the scriptures describe him as a lion. And when the scriptures talk of someone being a lion, it talks about that person's power and majesty. Their, their right to rule, the, the inherent authority. And lions devour and lions roar. Of course, there's someone who is worthy. Put, put all of that together. John knew that the elder was talking about none other than Jesus, the conquering warrior Messiah of the line of David. And so you can just imagine John eagerly awaiting the triumphant entry of this, of this uh, mighty warrior. I love this break in this passage. Because I love to imagine what John must have been expecting. The triumphant entry of the Messiah. I kind of like to imagine what I would have been thinking. If what you might have been imagining. What's the image of, of Jesus that was going to arrive triumphantly on the scene? If you're a C.S. Lewis fan, well, it would be a lion. If uh, you, you kind of like the classics, maybe it's a knight in shining armor. Maybe you think of a, a soldier in a tank or some kind of a science fiction character with a laser gun. Yet regardless of what our image or what John was expecting to see, what blows me away every time about this passage and what has changed my life and what has strengthened my faith and given me so much understanding is the image that God chose concerning his son Jesus for John to see. Verse 6. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Standing in the center before the throne. Imagine the shock. This wasn't a lion. It was a lamb. Looking, looking as if he had been slain, which literally means to be cut up and mutilated for sacrifice. Bearing the wounds of sacrificial death. Imagine the contrast. I'm not sure what John was imagining, but uh, perhaps it was, it was going to be this triumphant entry by someone wearing a, a, a royal crown or, or some kind of fighting headgear. And yet it's a lamb with a, a crown of thorns thrust into its head. Maybe John's imagining this, this lion that was going to triumphantly come in and he was wearing uh, royal sandals or, or military footwear and, and handwear. And, and yet he turns and he sees a lamb with holes in his hands and his feet. Maybe he was imagining a lion that was going to come in with a sword and a shield 
And he turns and he sees a lamb with a spear hole in his side. And why? Why would God choose this image of Jesus to be what John turns and sees? Why emphasize the suffering? It's a question that plagued me for years. I I grew up in a church like Auburn at Don Valley. My parents dragged me every Sunday. We had two services. Actually, we had three. My parents dragged me every Sunday morning, sick or not, to the breaking of bread service, where I sat for an hour in what I thought at the time was nothing much more than a funeral service. Why all this talk about the death of Jesus? Why not talk about other things? There's got to be more positive things to emphasize. People don't like hearing about Jesus having to die. And it was when I first picked up and studied Revelation 4 and 5 that God so powerfully gave me the answer. Why so much emphasis? Why would God choose this image? Because at the very core of Christianity is the cross of Christ. Pivotal to the working out of God's plan of salvation is the death and resurrection of Jesus. This text links the worthiness of Jesus to open the scroll to his crucifixion. It says in verse 9, And they sang a new song in chapter 5, You were worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. The text tells us that it's because of the death of Jesus Christ and his subsequent resurrection that he has gained, he has attained a decisive victory for us. With your blood, you purchased for God members of every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. You see, a theme of scripture is that there is great victory because of great sacrifice. Contrary to what John imagined was taking place. God's plans weren't being thwarted. His his plans weren't going to fail. It's because of the death and resurrection of Jesus that God's plans will be fulfilled. If we took the time to go back to Isaiah 53, you would see it over and over. It was God's will that God placed on him the iniquity of us all. The scripture tells us that we see God at work in the salvation of people through and because of the death and resurrection of his son. And it's because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, salvation is possible for you and for me. If you've been hanging around Auburn for the last little while, you've heard it over and over and over again as we've gone through Paul's letter to uh, the church at Rome. We all got a problem. It's a problem of sin. We all fall short of a standard. God's holiness. All of us. None of us are different. 
No matter how hard we try, no matter how good we think we are, we all fall short of a standard. I I didn't write it. God is holy and he's just. And the wages of sin is death. It may not be the nicest story to share to some people. If we had a chance to rewrite it, maybe we would have made it sound prettier. But it's the truth. We all fall short of God's standards. And there's nothing that we can do. None of us is better than the other. A couple of weeks ago, I shared from Psalm 15. Who's the kind of person that can go free in and out of the presence of God and, and can stay and dwell forever? And we looked at that list and we were all left totally depressed. Because none of us can live up to that. But it reminded us that we needed a sacrifice. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And Jesus is that forgiveness. He is that, he is that sacrifice that's taken our place. And so the question I leave with you this morning is how have you responded to the Lamb? I put a lot of emphasis on the fact that Jesus is the lamb, but don't forget he's also the lion. How dreadful to face the lion. But how merciful, how compassionate, how forgiving the lamb. And if we respond by putting our faith and our trust in the lamb, that each of us has the opportunity to join in that great anthem of praise that ends chapter 5. And one of the things I think is kind of hokey at hockey games, the Pete's games, is when they start doing the wave. But one wave I'm really looking forward to is the wave that's going to take place in heaven. says, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped.